Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. On Wednesday, friend of the show, David Purdom, published an article on ESPN.com about what he called, quote, the wildest college football bet of the offseason, about a couple of guys who, without much science behind it, bet $1,000 at 1000 to 1 to win a million dollars on Utah State winning the national title this season. And then they bet another thousand bucks on it. And then someone they don't know in some other state also bet a thousand bucks on it. All three bets at Caesars Sportsbook. So Utah State, a 38 and a half point underdog to Alabama in week two is a $3 million liability to Caesars if they win the national title. John, how do you like Purdom's adjective choice wildest? Would you have gone with dumbest or maybe boldest? And any chance you jump on this, you know, for a dollar to win a thousand dollars to be part of the sweat? Well, I, I want to go with dumbest, but there's a big caveat here. If they didn't play Alabama, their chance would be even worse. Mm. So if they lay a 41 10 beat down at Alabama, then the tide go undefeated in the SEC and Utah State goes undefeated, period. I mean, you can see what I mean. I mean, Cincinnati went unbeaten in a, in a better conference last year, nearly missed out of the playoff in spite of having won an eternally overrated Notre Dame. Uh, there are dozens of teams with even worse chances of winning it all than Utah State for sure, simply because they can't produce a quality win like this because they don't play any of the sports titans. So it's dumb, but it's not the dumbest. But I'll keep my dollar. Thanks. <laughs> OK, yeah, I, I don't even I don't want to throw that uh, one dollar away either. <laughs> uh, what I would consider doing, though, is bet Utah State plus the 38 and a half points in week two against Alabama. Just bet them to cover as a show of faith in the information that led these guys to believe Utah State will be better this season than the odds suggest. Uh, But I love the quote from Adam Pullen of Caesars when Purdom asked him his level of concern about the $3 million liability. He described that level of concern as none and said simply, we're not worried. Uh, Fact is, Even if Utah State upsets Alabama, which history and the odds suggest is somewhere around a 1% shot, give or take half a percentage point, even if they pull that off, 
they still need to lose no more than one game the rest of the season, which they're probably an underdog to do, then beat two teams like Georgia and Ohio State or, or Georgia and Alabama again or something like that to win the national championship. It's a ridiculous parlay. Uh, I'd sooner bet them at about 40 to one just to score the one big upset in week two over Alabama than at a thousand to one to win the national title. But hey, to each their own. There's something to be said for getting drunk, betting on a hunch with money that you can afford to lose uh, and, and having a story to tell, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think the odds of me watching Alabama, Utah State were 0%, and now it's up to like <laughs> 10 or 15%. So right. there's something there, I guess. I guess so. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 206 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 205 episodes, they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. Re-listen to them all and let us know which episode qualifies as the wildest episode of Gamble On ever. And coming up a little later in the show, we're going to be joined by Alex Harden, one of the Roto Grinder staff's foremost experts on college football. With the first game kicking off this Saturday, we'll ask Alex about national title favorites and long shots, how to bet on games with massive point spreads, and whether a powerhouse team is still a powerhouse with its backup quarterback. But first, it's been a mid-August level, busy week, I'd say, in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. Our news stories this week each focus on a particular state, and we'll start with the biggest state of them all, population-wise, California. Seems like every week there's a notable development as the Golden State builds toward the November vote on Propositions 26 and 27. And the big news this week is that there is no longer a political divide in our country. The Democrats and Republicans have come together and all it took to get them on the same page was mobile sports betting legislation in California. Uh, in late July, you'll recall the Democratic Party in California announced it was opposing Prop 27. And last Friday, the Republican Party did the same. Jessica Milan Patterson, chairwoman of the California Republican Party, said in a release, quote, Prop 27 breaks the promise made to California's Native American tribes to grant them the sovereign right to operate gaming in California in order to improve the lives of their communities across the state. We stand with California tribes and oppose Prop 27, end quote. While the Democrats opted to take a neutral stance on Prop 26, the bill for retail betting at tribal casinos, the Republicans actually oppose Prop 26. Uh, but our focus is on Prop 27, and at least one political consultant told our colleague and last week's podcast guest, Jill Dorson, that she's never seen this before, a ballot measure opposed by both parties. So, John, are, are you feeling more now like this thing is doomed uh, or... Are there enough independents or people who will ignore their party's preference for Prop 27 to still have a shot at passing? Well, first of all, I think that some lobbyists uh, in Sacramento uh, for the tribes uh, clearly uh, deserve a bonus and they deserve yeah. it immediately. Um, and because the fact is not all tribes oppose this, but uh, apparently the ones that matter do <laughs> are the ones that have the most power do. Yeah. Uh, also, California is very blue, obviously. So left-leaning voters who only hear that Democrats oppose Prop 
27 will vote against it, right? Well, left-leaning voters will only hear the Republicans oppose Prop 27 <laughs> will vote for it. And no, I'm not kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so this double whammy plus the petty deluge of negative advertising that come after Labor Day, I don't think it bodes well for either of those, you know. Uh, in 1974, as uh, you remember, well, no, you don't. Weren't, <laughs> Not quite, but, almost. <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah, New Jersey had a statewide ballot on becoming the second state to legalize casinos. It lost in a landslide. The backers returned two years later with a new and very improved version, and it passed easily. So I'm starting to wonder if this will happen again here in California. Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess, sort of a silver lining type approach that even if this fails, they could come back with something better a couple of years later. Um, it's certainly hard to feel optimistic right now about this passing, although a lot can change in two plus months. I mean, look at the projections for House control and Senate control now versus two or three months ago. It mm -hmm. swung significantly and it could still swing again. Yeah. So there is time here for the messaging to reach people and give Prop 27 a chance. But I think mostly if you're thinking this can pass, you're rooting for people who are into sports and sports betting and care about this to come out in force and for people who don't really care to just not vote on it. Um, it feels like a real long shot, though. I would assume too many people who don't know what this is will look up what their party is saying and, and they'll vote no. Uh, but I don't know. A contrarian take here, perhaps. But what if all the confusion created by the various ads does indeed lead say like 75 or 80% of the people stepping into the voting booth to just not vote on these measures at all because they're so confused, you know, maybe in a twist, the confusion actually helps prop 27 pass. If most of the only people voting on it are people who are informed and support it. I don't know. I'm probably uh, galaxy braining it a little bit there and, and considering it, a, a, you know, too many twists within a twist, but uh, it's possible something like that goes down. It's definitely strange to me that the GOP is saying we stand with the tribes and oppose Prop 27, but then that they also oppose Prop 26, which the tribes want to pass. I'm not sure I follow that logic. Um, one additional note from Jill's article, this is now the most money ever poured into a California ballot measure, uh, $357 million at last count, just about evenly split by those supporting Prop 27 and those opposing it. The previous record was around $200 million in 2020 on a rideshare proposition. So if nothing else, I guess those figures give you a sense of what's at stake here. Well, you know, obviously there are far fewer uh, ballot measures in New Jersey than in California or the other 49, the other 48 states too, right. uh, compared to California. But in 2016, there was a record amount spent opposing uh, the uh, end of the Atlantic City monopoly. I love that because Atlantic City monopoly, it's, yeah, it's fine. Right. Anyway, um, <laughs> on, on uh, casinos and it lost big time. A record amount was spent on a ballot measure in New Jersey incredible $8 million was spent to uh, kill that one. So, I mean, I know California is a bigger state, but holy right. crap. And uh, the other thing is that, you know, all the negative advertising that people hate uh, in political campaigns, but then it sort of works and that's why they still do it. But it's because people eventually say, well, I have to vote for one or the other. I don't have a choice here. You don't have to vote for anything. You can just vote. No, nothing. Uh, that's why I think the negative advertising here to be more effective because uh, you know, the other way people are disgusted, but they kind of lean and they pick one here. You just say, no, screw it. We're not doing anything. So I'm, I'm pretty gloomy about this now. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm definitely down on the, the chances here, but I'll still give this a better shot of passing than Utah State. Of winning yes, absolutely. <laughs> All right. We go from uh, one major state that's trying to get through the messy process of legalizing sports betting to another major state that's trying to get through an even messier process of legalizing sports betting. Yes, there are new wrinkles in the Florida case. The Seminole Tribe and the state have filed an amicus brief in the sports betting compact appeal, arguing that off-reservation mobile bets were authorized by state law and are a permissible allocation of jurisdiction under IGRA. It's all very complicated and confusing and full of legal jargon, jargon, which makes this much more up your alley than mine, John. Plus, you read the 60-page filing. I didn't. So give us the approximately one-minute-long explanation of what's happening here, and then any analysis you may have as to what it all means for the Seminoles' hopes of offering sports betting again soon. Well, that's a challenge. And, uh, you know, it's two 32-page filings, but uh, ah, okay. but who's counting? Um <laughs> So oversimplifying, but the Department of Interior, which is the defendant because it allowed a Florida sports betting compact to pass muster under IGRA, may soon be joined by the two parties who actually cut the deal, the state and the Seminole tribe. This is an effort to clean up some messes, really. I mean, one was that Interior at times had previously suggested this compact in part authorized sports betting too, when in fact the tribe says that was a misstatement and that sports betting is allowed under a separate state law. And they want to say that, and they do say that, well, you know, why screw us over? Because these guys screwed up our own case. So I kind of get that. And also weird is the plaintiffs only sought to stop the mobile sports betting part of this compact. It's pretty obvious that the tribe is entitled to offer sports betting at its brick and mortar casinos and that it can offer table games now like craps under this new compact. Yet the judge threw out the babies with the bathwater. So Mm -hmm. the tribe is a lock to win on those fronts, but it may take a while. So the real bottom line is that I think if a judge is inclined to side with the tribe, these briefs provide enough ammunition to make for a factual seeming ruling now. Uh, whether it be accurate based on the minutia of Florida gambling law, that one's above my pay grade. But I think the tribe and maybe more importantly, Florida betters who want to gamble legally, I'd say they saw their prospects improve a bit on Wednesday. Okay. Um, so you, so you want to know how I spent my uh, morning today, John, yeah. at, at 8am. Uh, I clicked a link to go to a Twitch broadcast of Daniel Wallach live okay. on a Florida sports radio show. Yeah. Uh, and I jotted down a, a few of the things he said, had, had I not happened to time that uh, to uh, check his Twitter account to see what he was saying about this uh, right at the moment that he was going on air, I would be coming into this conversation with no knowledge whatsoever. But instead, mm-hmm. I, I come in with a little bit. Uh, he laid out the timeline. And it's not encouraging for Floridians who want sports betting soon. That's for sure. He said the initial decision on this would likely come in spring 2023, and that'll be followed by challenges and rehearings. He said, quote, this won't be resolved in the courts until 2023 or potentially 2024. Mm -hmm. And then he added the most plausible scenario to bring this to bear is a ballot initiative in November 2024. So he's still saying that kind of whatever shakes out here we're at least two years away from Florida betters having another crack at this. Um, I also got to share that uh, on Twitch during the interview, uh, I found myself somewhat distracted looking at the listener chat bar on the side of the screen. It was kind of amusing. Uh, Adam underscore D 33 underscore Jaguars underscore fan wrote, why are all these Indians screwing up my gambling? And uh, Jimmy bird one replied, not Indians, they are guardians. 
So uh, just sharing that to break up the legalese and the seriousness with some lame humor from the peanut gallery. Yeah, that's not too bad. Uh, And of course, uh, I go back uh, with Daniel longer than anybody, uh, 10 years now, uh, originally on the sports betting case in New Jersey. And uh, uh, it took me a six year lawsuit and it took me about almost five years before I listened to him long enough to be like, Holy crap, he's right. New Jersey's going to win <laughs> after all. And I and now I can even see why they're going to do it. And he was sure of it and he was right. And um, on this one, he's been solid so far. And um, he definitely is in the technical weeds on this one as to whether this is a valid um, uh, argument being made now by the tribe and the state. But it, I know it's a better argument than, than it was made before. And uh you know, I'll defer to him on whether this passes muster. But again, my cynical feeling is that whenever a case is just good enough that a judge can or a panel can use it to justify a ruling they want to make anyway, I think that happens. I'm sure a lot of attorneys don't want to argue, want to agree with that. That's what I believe. And I think that if for whatever reason there's a feeling that, hey, let's let this go through, I think it's possible. Yeah. Um, you know, we haven't had uh, Daniel on the podcast in a, in a little while. Uh, perhaps perhaps we're inching toward uh, another Daniel Wallach appearance on our pod sometime soon. Well, we only have, what, about 18 months before this thing is decided. <laughs> right. I guess it's not urgent. <laughs> sometime between now and then, we will have Daniel Wallach sure. on the pod again. All right. Um, for our third story, let's talk about a state that definitely is about to have sports betting soon very soon. Uh, Kansas announced its go live date, and that date is September 1st, one week from today, as we're recording this on Thursday. If indeed the first bets are taken next Thursday, that'll make Kansas the second fastest state to progress from legal to live behind only Iowa. Iowa needed just 96 days in 2019. This would be 112 days since Kansas lawmakers legalized sports betting on May 12th. If I'm understanding it correctly, September 1st will be the start of a soft launch, and by September 8th, the first day of NFL season, it'll be all systems go. There will be four casinos with retail sports books and eight online operators, more or less the usual suspects, DraftKings, FanDuel, BetMGM, Caesars, PointsBet, Barstool, FoxBet, and BallyBet. The sign-up promos so far are just a wee bit smaller than they were earlier this year in New York. FanDuel and DraftKings, for example, are offering $100 in free bets for new customers. John, how impressed and or surprised are you by Kansas moving this quickly? And how pissed off should people in Maryland be who are now being told that maybe they'll have betting in time for the Super Bowl? Well, first, I'm a little distracted by $100 in free bets in Kansas versus, say, $1,000 in free bets in Manhattan. Oh, actually, Manhattan, Kansas versus Manhattan, New York City. I like that. <laughs> right. Important uh, I think yeah. about it. Uh, that's pretty much equivalent, I think. I'd have to do the calculation. But so <laughs> it's not as bad as you think. Um, now, I would consult Marylanders. Are they Marylanders? I'm not sure. But uh, I would consult residents of Maryland, let's say, yeah. uh, by reminding them that their state law has something like 150 sports betting licenses available. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember the retiring lottery director referred to that as uh, very close to infinity, meaning. Right. <laughs> uh, and I would not remind them that Gambling Med New Jersey up the road allows for 36 uh, sports books and only has something like 22 after more than four years of heavy action. But now it seems like Kansas government has collectively made a sports betting launch a high priority. Yeah. After all, it's not like anything else is going on out there or another state is there. So is being really, really quick to get this done at the expense of something else? I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, that's a, <laughs> I wonder how 
can can Kansans. Okay, I had to pause for a second and think how we say people from Kansas, but Kansans, I believe, is correct. I wonder how the ones who don't care about sports betting feel about how quickly this yeah. is moving and whether it's taking away from something else. Yeah. It's a good point you raised. It's still crazy to me how slow Maryland is moving. I mean, yeah. you look at Ohio, that's a state that I would describe as deliberate, but within reason. Maryland, this is outrageous how little urgency has been shown there. And, you know, I get that in the big picture, sports betting should never truly be urgent, but uh, damn. Uh, But anyway, this news item isn't really about Maryland. It's about Kansas and good for them for the quick turnaround, at least from a sports better's perspective. There is a lot of money to be made during NFL season. Why not make it? Um, And it is good legislation overall. The tax rate is very low, 10%. Maybe they're leaving some money on the table there, Mm. but no restrictions on college betting. Eight mobile operators is plenty for a smaller state. This is this is a solid approach, I'd say. Um, I'll, I'll note also that there was a momentary hiccup a few days ago when the state attorney general's office said they identified, quote, significant legal issues with the rules, but those were reportedly quickly resolved. So it looks like all systems go for next Thursday. Uh, yeah, again, that priority. Some, somehow the major problems were solved with one phone call. Um, okay, <laughs> uh, I think it's good. But yeah, I, I agree. The the legislation in general is pretty solid. And uh, I think it's good for kind of a core of the heartland state to have that approach, you know, because there is some piggybacking and copycatting. And uh, I think it wouldn't hurt if some of the surrounding states uh, just pretty much went this route too. My, my personal ranking of most important issues, uh, you know, in 2022, I go uh, protecting democracy three, saving the planet uh, two, and getting sports betting legalized in Kansas one. I, yeah. I, I think that's, I think I've got things in the right order. Uh, I think uh, the residents of Kansas would agree with you in a, refer- in a referendum. Yeah. Okay. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. After months of NIL deals and conference realignment dominating the offseason college football news cycle, we are now just days away from actual games, games that in about half the states in the country now, sports bettors can actually wager on. Assorted unranked teams kick off their seasons this Saturday, and the rest start the following week. And joining us now to help preview the season from a betting perspective is Roto Grinders insider Alex Harden, better known to some as Fear My Turtle, who ranked third out of nearly 6,000 players last year on the Roto Grinders college football DFS leaderboard. Alex, welcome to Gamble On. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the top with the national championship picture. The sports books have decided going into the season that this is a three-team race. It's Alabama as high as plus 190 at BetMGM, Ohio State as high as plus 320 also at BetMGM, and Georgia at plus 450 at the assorted Camby sports books. Do any of those three have value in your view at such short prices, or, or is there a long shot that you think is worth a flyer? Yeah, so I view it a little bit more open than that. And the problem with this market specifically is there's such a high hold percentage. So if you go through all the odds and add up all the implied odds, it's going to be some books, 140 to 200%. So, I mean, it, it kind of sets a landscape that's tough to identify true value. Um, so the, the short odds, those teams are great. There's likely going to be probably at least two of them in the playoffs. But from a futures perspective, their teams I'll probably be avoiding. I do have some interesting long shots, though, because, you know, it's supposed to be fun. So it, it's kind of 
getting that 80 to one, 101 team that's still live late in the season is a pretty cool thing. So um, Miami at 100 to one, it's pretty interesting. Avoiding the SEC gauntlet, um, ACC is pretty wide open. Lots of Clemson question marks. I think they're interesting. Um, Live their quarterback, Tyler Van Dyke. Um, we move out west, Utah, 80 to 1. Again, avoiding the SEC. Um, Cameron Rising, a quarterback. They have a strong team. Um, they have a couple of, of tough games on their calendar, but they do get USC at home. So that's a good one. And my final one is Texas at 80 to 1, which I think is interesting as well. And you see the theme kind of avoiding the SEC to find that, that value team, that long shot. So those three, Miami, Utah, and Texas, are pretty interesting to me at those numbers. Okay. And, and there's actually one interesting market that I saw on one of the sites of a price of Alabama versus the field. So it's a, a different way of fading the big favorite, but I saw a price of minus 210 for the field versus Alabama. Any interest there or laying minus 210? Uh, what, what do you think of that? Yeah, I probably wouldn't. Uh... I mean, I would side with the field on that one, but it's probably not something that I'm looking to, to lock up money on for, for a few months, just for minus 210. But if I were to pull, pull, pull the trigger on that one, yeah, I, I would lean towards the field on that. Right. But from a fun perspective, you're talking about yeah. how the long shots are fun. This is the exact opposite of that, I guess, taking the minus 210. Yeah, for sure. All right, Eric, you'd be glad to know I took uh, about one of those $5 free bets. And as you know, uh, uh, Captain Jack has admonished me because I'll tend to make like an even money bet on a $5 free bet. And he would say, <laughs> that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. It's free. So I took Penn State at 101. Uh, so okay. there you go. Yeah. 100 bucks. And, uh, you know, it's like a lot of those teams in, in a in a non-SEC conference, especially uh, until they lose a game, I'm good to go. So and <laughs> yeah. I haven't checked the schedule, but I assume the first two or three games, I'm in good shape. So, you know, then probably a tough one and then try and get a little further and all that. So uh, anyway, I'm fun with that. But I want to ask you, Alex, about um, one of the things that I, I struggle with with looking at college football and why I focus more on the NFL is the number of double digit favorites. I, I mean, heavy double digit favorites, you know, NFL, you might go three years without a 20 point spread, right? And college, especially in the early going, you're getting 35, 40 point point spreads. And, you know, if you're favored by 38 and you lead 35, nothing at halftime, that head coach is going to decide which side covers, right? So if he wants to get all 115 kids in because it's homecoming or whatever um, and start them in the second quarter sometimes, you know, then he might not cover. And if he is determined, you know, trying to hope to move up from 18 to 15 or whatever, because the early season voters are not really paying attention, um, he may even mistakenly think that he can run up the score and, and get advantage out of that. So I think the casual player sort of has this fantasy of, you know, Oh, you can tell which coaches are always looking out for the boosters and, you know, they're making sure they make their big bucks with the, the local bookie or whatever. And uh, I'm wondering, A, is that hundred percent a myth and B, is there any science whatsoever here or is it just uh, a casual fans fantasy? I mean, it wouldn't be surprising to me if some coaches were more beholden to their boosters than others. But for me, unless I have specific information, yeah. it's not something I quantify. So I, I don't account for it. But you can see the different personalities probably having different relationships with the boosters. Like Nick Saban, he's going to do what he wants to do. He's not going to be influenced by outside outsiders. Mm. So I think for the, for the teams and the coaches, it's more important for them to get others playing time. They have such large rosters. A lot of these good teams have real, a lot of depth. They need to get these guys on the field and keep them happy. They just can't plow through the second half and run up the score. But it's actually interesting that you asked this because this offseason, I was interested in those high numbers. So they found a really good data source that had all the closing lines of the last like 25,000 college football games by point spread. So 
Closing lines of minus 30 or more, they covered 49% of the time. You're expecting something around 50, but when you move to 40, minus 40, they covered 47%. And spreads of 50 to 50 and over, the the favorite covered only 42% of the time. So you see there is a kind of a trend as the spread gets wider that they tend to not cover. This isn't specific advice for any certain game. There's a large trend. I think it's kind of a myth that they can always name the score or they're always going going after the cover. I still, I like that the concept. Uh, you know, I'll look for that fifty-one point dog. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. ride them hard. <laughs> I mean, that's a really fun bet to make. Yeah. When you're getting fifty points and you see it evaporate in the second quarter and you're down to like seventeen <laughs> by halftime. Yeah. So, so speaking of some of those those game to game trends, once the season is underway and and you're betting week to week, where do you tend to look to to find value, Alex? Do you look for uh, weaker schools in more off the radar games where, where maybe the bookmakers handicapping could be lacking, or do you find that there tend to be particular conferences where value emerges? Is there some edge to be had staying away from the really big schools that everybody knows about? I think that there's something to that. Cause most weeks I won't have a, a strong take on a lot of the big marquee games. Like you see, like Alabama's playing Georgia and it's minus three. I'm like, well, looks about right. That's going to be a good game. <laughs> like there's nothing that I can say that either side's an edge necessarily. So I, I find myself seeing a lot of these like Sunbelt type games where I can see, oh, I think they're not accounting for this. Um, something I like to do after each week is go look back at the post game win, win expectations for certain games. Sometimes the market can undervalue or overvalue a team just based on the record, not really how they, they showed on the field. So that's really like if the game was played again and the same stats came out, like which team would win. So maybe they didn't perform well in key spots or had some bad turnovers. So you can kind of see maybe, maybe the market's just undervaluing this team because they, they were unlucky for a few games. So that's something, but in general, I'm looking more at the, the smaller conferences. That's where I think I would have an edge. As you alluded to up front, I'm more focused on uh, daily fantasy. So I'm pretty selective with the games that I bet. And they tend to be those smaller conference, Mountain West, Mac even. Those nice November Tuesdays, get some action down. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I think that certainly that's a good philosophy for anyone is to look for the games where you feel you maybe have an edge and, and don't feel like you have to bet every game. Certainly. I mean, with college football, I don't know how you could, um, but I'm an extreme casual when it comes to college football. I follow the NFL closely and bet it a lot. I hardly bet college football at all. One thing that I like to do with NFL is those three team teasers. You know, you find your, your, eight point favorite that you can get down to two. And that, that feels like a fun spot. I'm assuming with some of these gigantic spreads that you find in college football, that there, there's not as much of a place for finding these teaser bets. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cause in the NFL, you have a lot of games around those key numbers. So if you tease it down, it's moving from like a seven to a, like a one, which is obviously important, but right. like college football, you get these wide spreads, like moving it from like a 23 to a 16 doesn't really have the same effect in, in terms of crossing key numbers and stuff. So Teasers are something I usually will stay away from, but I, I will be more apt to throw in some like like underdog money line parlays in college just because of the uncertainty. So, I mean, like an example this week is like Hawaii has their home opener against Vanderbilt and Vanderbilt's a six point favorite. There's a lot of uncertainty on both sides there. Like I wouldn't mind taking Hawaii plus 200 um, and then parlaying it with something else. So, I mean, you can get a lot, a lot of, more creative in college football, whereas in the pros, like more information is known. There's more certainty, a larger sample. So that's definitely a different approach. Gotcha. 
Yeah, I want to talk about quarterbacks and another difference between the NFL and college football. I mean, obviously in the NFL, you know, Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers or whoever is limping around, uh, they skip practice on Wednesday and or Thursday. And betters are really focused on Sunday morning, um, particularly if he's going to play, obviously. But even if he is going to play, you know, what's the feeling? Is he not 100 percent? Is he going to, you know, maybe not even start the game or what have you? Um, but college football, I feel like that's kind of fool's gold, especially top 25 and especially top 10 on top of that, where I mean, if anything, I think if uh, uh, a, a top 10 team, uh, their quarterback might not play. And then you find out they're not going to play. I'd like to take that team rather than run away from them because, you know, I see so many stars born, uh, you know, episodes with teams like that, where in the NFL, NFL, the feeling is nobody has two starting quality quarterbacks, maybe one or two teams do in college. It seems like the elite teams, they might have three or four that are worthy of playing division one starting football. So um, do you, even and obviously it's different for DSS that the guy plays or not kind of everything. But um, but in terms of the the regular betting, is there any reason to even focus very much on, uh, you know, whether the quarterback is going to play or be 100 percent healthy for top, say, top 25 teams? I think it does. But the challenge is knowing when it matters and mm. when it doesn't. So and that's something as a handicapper, you have to quantify on a case by case basis. And like, mm. really, you're, you're asking, like, what's the relative difference between the quarterbacks? What's the drop off? What are they asked to do within the offense and what's the resistance that the opposing defense is going to provide? So like, to your point, if Alabama's quarterback Bryce Young goes out and they're playing, they're a 35 point favorite and Jalen Milrow comes in and plays to me, that doesn't change anything. But if they're on the road at Georgia, that, that might be a bit more impactful. Then there's teams where if the starter gets hurt in the backup plays, they might actually be better. And that's, yeah, I'm looking at you Clemson. Um, so I, <laughs> there's just a wide range of variables. So I like to look at it like the upper scale, of the quarterback is worth like seven points into a, a replacement level zero. And there are some negatives. So you try to just identify it and try to quantify to the best of your ability, that gap. And I do have kind of an advantage of that working with DFS. We're doing like bottom up projections for all teams. So I'm like aware of the depth charts and checking recruiting and stuff like that. So I would say generally speaking, it doesn't matter as much. But at, at, there's points that you can certainly make a case that it does matter a lot in college football. Yeah, well, you make a good point, too, that there isn't an NFL team that averages 200 yards rushing per game, right? But in college, right. you might have that. So, uh, And you don't have a defense that is as dominant as some you know, SEC teams might be in the NFL. They're good defenses, but the difference between them and another is not as much. So, yeah, I can see maybe a little bit of a margin there where you're figuring, you know, which teams really need a quarterback. And obviously there are some pretty high powered offenses in college football where they pass constantly. And so that would be a drop off. So, um, so I'll, I'll think about that. I'm not going to worry about the college football quarterback starting health in every game, but I'll look for the games where it might matter. Yeah, it's a good approach. All right. Well, it's been uh, great talking to you, Alex. Uh, if any of our listeners want to follow Alex on Twitter, he's at Fear My Turtle DFS. Uh, thanks so much for, for joining us on the podcast. And of course, uh, good luck with your bets and your DFS this football season. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks, Alex. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. Let's update our betting bankroll, and we did quite well for ourselves this past week. 
And even the one thing that went poorly comes with a silver lining. And let's get that out of the way first. My bet on the Cardinals to beat the Ravens as plus 225 underdogs lost. That cost us $60. However, I swore that if the bet lost, I was done betting on preseason sports for the remainder of 2022. So that's the silver lining. I can no longer lose us money betting on games that don't count. <laughs> uh, now for the wins. Uh, you crushed it again on CFL, John. Uh, easy cover with the BC Lions. We won $150 on that. You came out just barely ahead on golf. Denny McCarthy at even money for top 30 snuck in there and won us 80 bucks. We lost 60 on Sam Burns top 10 and lost another 10 on Rory to win the tournament. So that's a net win of $10 on golf. And then I had a strong week on boxing with both a favorite and an underdog. My bet from a few weeks ago on Usyk over Joshua won us $50 and the upset pick of Pueo over Akhmedov scored us $85. Though I gave $10 of that back betting the draw. By the way, as promised, I totaled up four plus years of my boxing bets, mostly to satisfy my own curiosity. And I am currently ahead by $396 on those. It has been a steady slide downward from being up about 1300 on boxing a couple of years ago, but I am still beating the books overall on the one sport I should know better than they do. Now, John, do you want me to total up all of your golf bets for next week, or would you prefer not to know? Well, I'd have lost big, and I think uh, the vast majority of our subscribers would have lost big as well. You asked me to bet on whether your four years of boxing bets were in the red or in the black, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of stunned. You have to be like a, like a day one subscriber, I think, to really believe that you're actually ahead on boxing, but I'll take your word for it. And sure, give me the golf tally next week. Uh, I think I'm ahead for the last three or four months at least, but I'm not right. sure about overall. Yeah, you've definitely been on a good run lately. Uh, I would, I guess I would go into it with the attitude of, based on the fact that we're down a significant amount overall, probably any sport that we focus on for either of us, the chances are we're behind on it. So if you go in with that yeah. expectation, uh, maybe we'll be pleasantly surprised that you're a little bit ahead on golf. But uh, okay, that's on my to-do list for next week. Um, we won $220 last week on our bets. Uh, that puts us back on the good side of the $3,000 line or the minus $3,000 line anyway. Uh, we're now down $2,954. We also have $1,205 on hold and futures bets, leaving us with $5,841 available to bet with this week. And you're up first, John. Yeah, and speaking of golf, it's the end of the PGA Tour season with the FedEx Cup Tour Championship. And for those who wish golf was more like pro wrestling, maybe tune in Thursday afternoon for the pairing of tour leader Rory McIlroy and Cameron Smith, the British Open champ, already has nine toes out of 10 in the Saudi-backed Live Tour and a $100 million check coming his way. Uh, but overall, the, the way to bet this tournament is to pretend that a first round was already played because the tour gives a score to each of the 30 finalists before they uh, tee off. So number one, Scotty Scheffler begins to play at 10 under par. Uh, number two, Patrick Cantlay is eight under par. And so on down to the poor bastards ranked 26 to 30. They start at even par. So good luck with that, fellas. So only a handful of players really worth considering here. And you're obviously not going top 20 this time. Uh, the event is held the same course every year in Atlanta, which is key to the research, I think. So give me Rory McIlroy at 100 units and plus 140 for a top five. He's already tied for fifth before he starts. And he would have won last week if not for an awful putter. But Rory loves these East Lake greens. So I can't quite go for the win. Well, I will. I was going <laughs> to say I can't quite go for the win because Rory's six shots back and he's not been a closer in 2022. Uh, but throw me another 10 units at uh, plus 900 that he wins. Okay. Uh, so 
I can't bet on preseason in the NFL, <laughs> uh, but I can bet on other football games where I'm basically turning off the lights and throwing a dart. Week <laughs> zero college football. Um, I want to show a little trust and faith in our interview guest, Alex Harden. I fear his turtle and I trust his insights. And uh, he mentioned liking Hawaii in an underdog parlay to open the season. I won't try to parlay it. I'll just take a shot on Hawaii. Alex said he liked them at about plus 200. Turns out I'm finding them as high as plus 260 to win the game. I did a tiny bit of research on my own. Hawaii is playing at home. Vanderbilt lost their best pass rusher to an ACL injury in the preseason, Miles Caper. And Hawaii is expected to pass a lot, so that absence of Caper will matter. Tons of new players on the Hawaii team and a new head coach. Nobody knows quite what to expect from them. Vanderbilt is an SEC team, although something of a doormat in the SEC. Sorry, Adam Small and other better collective Vandy grads. Uh, They're favored and understandably, but this does look like a fun underdog pick from Alex. Hawaii could win. They also could get blown out. Betting them to cover the eight points doesn't interest me, but betting them on the money line does. So let's bet $40 to win 104 on Hawaii. Yeah, and Hawaii has won like seven of the last eight covers uh, in their home openers. And, okay. you know, remember Vanderbilt, the, the reason they're a doormat in the SEC is that their athletes are actually student athletes. So they, right. they're busy with classes. <laughs> so and some of them are nerds, let's be honest. And so they're going to like the the uh, the pork roast, the luau, all the traditional you know Hawaiian things. And I can mm-hmm. see them, you know getting a little distracted. So I'd like your pick. So, okay. And, and there are many time zones away from what their body clocks are used to. Uh, indeed. Yeah. Right. So, uh, so I've made five CFL picks this year, five dominations of yardage totals, and I've got a four and one record. I still have to wonder possibly it's a small sample size. So I'll just stick with 165 to win 150 again this week, but I felt all season, all right, half season, but uh, that the league leading Winnipeg Blue Bombers were a bit overrated and the Calgary Stampeders get six points here while enjoying a four and one road record so far. Mm. But Winnipeg's two seven point wins over Calgary this season, uh, it clearly showed the Blue Bombers to be the better squad that pretty much did a great job in a line of scrimmage and an elite defense plus a quarterback who the Stampeders can't stop is alluring. Now, for bonus points, Calgary has quarterback issues, and they play this one on Thursday night, just five days after the previous game, while the Bombers come off a bye. Add it all up, and we've got another gamble on win, Eric. All right, so you got Blue Bombers minus six was the yes, spread. It was indeed. a real uh, roller coaster for me. I started jotting down Stampeders <laughs> plus six as your pick and then had to erase it and uh, write there down Blue Bombers minus six. All right, so my first pick this week came from the mind of our interview guest. My second pick is all mine. Uh, boxing on ESPN Saturday night, solid matchup of veteran 140 pounders, both former belt holders, now in their mid-30s, but still fighting at a world-class level. Richard Comey versus Jose Sniper Pedraza. Before I looked up the odds, I figured Pedraza should be a small favorite, maybe minus 175 with Comey plus 135, somewhere in that range. Turns out DraftKings has Pedraza minus 280 and Comey plus 210. I think that's a mild mispricing. There's definitely value on the underdog Comey there. They have almost identical records. Pedraza is 29 and four. Comey is 30 and four. And they've both only lost to top level opponents. I think the odds must be based on the closeness of their recent losses. Pedraza's last two losses were both competitive decisions to Jose Zapata and Jose Ramirez. Comey's last two losses were a second round stoppage against Teofimo Lopez and a wide decision against Vasily Lomachenko. But Lopez is a major talent with serious punching power. Comey got drilled. It happens. And Lomachenko is a future first ballot Hall of Famer who beat Pedraza by the same margins three years earlier. 
This is a close fight. Neither guy should be plus 210. So let's take Comey at that price, $50 to win 105. And that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Alex Harden. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. And with that, John, please take us out. Yeah, so I mentioned in a njonlinegambling.com story recently and possibly on last week's podcast that had a nugget about the jockeying for the three New York city area casino licenses, $500 million or better to open for a license, by the way. Now I agree. The chalk is aqueduct and Yonkers raceway getting a license each to upgrade from Racino to full fledged casino. But where does the other one go? Lots of speculation, but some are more in the know than others. My readers, listeners, and followers mainly know of Jeff Corral as the owner and operator of Meadowlands racetrack. Well, he has had a side hustle of sorts for the last 50 years or so as an incredibly wealthy New York City, especially Manhattan, real estate mogul. And he's a major, major donor in progressive New York City political circles, which, of course, is where the power is in the Big Apple. Now, Jeff Staff practically wrote the 2013 New York State law that allowed for seven casinos in the state and, by the way, sports betting someday if it ever became possible. And here we are. Um, So when he eliminates Manhattan from the picture and he mews, sorry, at a Saratoga Springs gaming conference uh, I attended recently, whose many wealthy pals were working on such plans. Well, he would know. And when Jeff says he expects Mets owner Steve Cohen to get the third casino to go next to City Field in Queens, well, I have a funny feeling Jeff knows something. And now, so do you. And with that, until next time, gamble on.